Hey you guys, Kokomoko here, and today's episode is with one of my favorite journalists who I've known about for like two or three years before I even made my TikTok. Her name is Taylor Lorenz, and she has covered every internet story that you can think of, but what's really fascinating about her is she's always like right before a story breaks. Like she was actually, I remember when she was at New York Times and she went and profiled the Hype House right when they became a thing. I don't know if you guys remember those photos and videos of them in like the iconic white t-shirt and jeans. That was her. So I remember that story going big. And at the time when I was at Famous Birthdays, we were interviewing the D'Amelios and the Addison Rays and uh, those people. And it wasn't until that New York Times article that mainstream media actually started acknowledging like TikTok stars and seeing that they were someone that was, you know, actually going to be of importance. And um, it was just this big shift, I think, in internet culture. And it was something that also YouTubers had been working for for years. And I think besides a few one-offs, it was really hard for YouTubers to be seen as mainstream celebrities in a lot of ways. Um, but Taylor Lorenz is always at like the cutting edge of these things and covering these stories as they happen. Um, and as a result, she's been working on a book for years called Extremely Online. And I was able to get access to the book before, um, it comes out in October, but she told me that pre-orders is the way that they really determine your success when you're putting out a book. Um, I was like noted if I ever put out a book, you guys have to get the pre-order. But anyways, um, pre-orders is their measurement for success. And this book was so good. You guys, I read through it in a week. I had my little highlighter. I had my pen. I was circling. I was highlighting. I was doing this. I was doing that. It was so good. And she said that there was over 150,000 words that she had to cut down to get into the book. Um, and I'm like, we need a part two, a part three, a part five, a part seven, a part 10. Like this book was so good and it covered so much ground. And I just want Taylor Lorenz to be able to like keep creating things like this um, and documenting internet history in a way that like I don't think anyone else is doing. Her book was so good and it covered so much ground from YouTube to TikTok to Instagram to Vine um, to even like VidCon. Did you guys know that YouTube started out as a dating app? I didn't know that until I read the book. So there's just so much in this book and I'm like, I just want to give Taylor as much support as we can because I want her to know how amazing it is. And she had 53 pages of just like references and notes in the back, if that's any indication for how information heavy and source heavy this book is. Like she really, really put so much into it. Anyways, with that being said, um, a few of the topics that I covered with her are... um, We talk about something that really took me by surprise. I actually was sitting at the West Hollywood Library reading this book when I came across this chapter and I had to run outside into the park and film a TikTok talking about it, which you guys really loved. Um, Lonely Girl 15. If you guys know, you know. And if you don't know, we're going to get into it. Um, But it was a fascinating social experiment um, on YouTube. And I might actually get to interview one of the guys behind that experiment Um, His name is Greg and he actually is now like the, he oversees the entire D'Amelio family. Um, 
it's this, you know, some people are just masterminds and they're behind so much of the internet that you don't even know. And he's one of those people. So I might get to interview him. Um, we also talk about like why we don't think industry plants are actually a real thing. We talk about the origins of YouTube and the first VidCon convention. Um, at one point we talk about the Logan and Jake Paul and like how they started on Vine, but there's just something about them where they're always able to evolve. Um, we talk about Emma Chamberlain and Tana Mojo and how they did something so different from what was popular on YouTube at the time. And it's why they really blew up. Um, and then I asked Taylor Lorenz about specifically her coverage of Hype House and she then goes into like why she thinks that Amelia and specifically Addison Rae were able to really break off and become more famous. We briefly talk about the genius of famous birthdays um, and then just like her overall conclusions about the book. Um, again, it's such a good book. Like I just I was sad when I finished it because I was like I it was that good Um so with that being said, you guys can get the pre-order link. It's going to be in the show notes of this pod. And um, it's. I really hope that you guys enjoy this interview. I hope it speaks for itself. I'm going to stop hyping it up and just let you guys enjoy. Um, and with that being said, I'm going to roll the intro. Will you tell my audience who you are if anyone listening doesn't know yet? Yeah, I'm Taylor Lorenz, and I'm a culture and technology journalist at the Washington Post. Amazing, and I—it's actually kind of full circle because I—I think I told you when we met, but um, I used to work at Famous Birthdays, and I remember when you were writing a story on them. I was like the lowest level employee at the time, so we didn't like talk. But I remember it was this big deal, and uh, the CEO Evans like everyone like Taylor Lorenz is coming in today. Like everyone like be ready. <laughs> and um, it's just such like a small office. Like it's funny, you would think the president was coming, but it was the first time I learned of your name. And then I followed you um, on social media after that. And I just think it was so fascinating, which we'll get into. But like one thing about you that was really interesting to me was that um, I remember the day that you covered the Hype House when it was like kind of announced that they were like, it was, they had announced it, but then I think you were at the New York Times when that story yeah, came out. I actually flew on Christmas Day to LA to get that story. They were trying to, they, they tried to get me to not do the story. And I was like, I'm, I actually lied and said I was already in LA and that I was coming oh. over to the house, but I was not. I was in New York. <laughs> was it Hype House or New York Times that was pushing back? Oh, Hype House. They didn't want me to, the, the talent had said, like the, the kids had said yes. Um, okay. And I knew, I knew them from before. Um, but then there were all these managers involved and, and talent agents and they were like, no, no, we're not ready for press. We're not doing press yet. And I was like, oh, I'm already in LA. I'm just coming over. And they were like, well, if you're in LA, okay. And, um, and then I came over. Yeah. And it's so funny because now one of the managers, the original, Charlie's original manager, I'm very, I'm close with her now. And she's like, yeah, we trust you. But like, they didn't know me at that time. Yeah. Yes. I was like, I have to be the first to cover. I'm very, I love being the first. The first, which is why, yeah, I feel like you're kind of, I almost think like in some ways I feel like you're similar to me, but yours is obviously more journalistic and like, like very legitimate. Um, and you cover so much ground, but I feel like you're always right before something blows up. Like, and I feel like that's why so many people, um, are always reading your stuff. And like, I, like, even when I posted about your book on my story, I had people DMing me who are like other journalists or industry people. And they're like, how did you get your hands on a book? Like, I feel like people really value your stories because they're always like right on the edge of 
when something's about to blow up. And I just remember that New York Times article coming out because um, at the time too, when I was at Famous Birthdays, we were interviewing the Hype House kids, but it wasn't really seen as legitimate. Like I think people were like, oh, this is a gimmick. Like what's TikTok? And then that, and then them in their white t-shirts, which you mentioned in the book. I always laugh. It's like the jeans and the white t-shirt. It was just this like huge moment on the internet where I think TikTok was pushed into the mainstream. But um, so I'm going to start diving too into like um, the way that I took the notes for this interview. I was going through the book in the order that it's written. And one of the first things that you mentioned, which was so fascinating to me was about the website social rank. And to me, it felt very similar to what Dumois is now. So can you explain to me, to the audience, maybe like what social rank was? And then I want to talk about why on the internet, like anonymous sources like Dumois seems so much more valuable when they're anonymous. But then the moment that people find out their identity, it's like, oh, I don't, like I yeah. feel like there's something there. It's so funny because I mean, I chose to start, I, I originally started was something more current um, just to get people in and kind of, cause I think people, when they hear my name, especially now, like they associate me with TikTok or something. Um, but then I just decided to start with that story because ever since that story broke, uh, it's just such a perfect metaphor for what the entire internet would become, which is sort of like this mass, like ranking system yeah. based on like public metrics and fame and attention and, and also just anonymous people kind of defining people's like reputations and telling these stories online. And I think that, I I think there's something so powerful about the anonymity in accounts like Social Rank or Dumois or like any of these accounts. It's just like, it it almost allows you to like put yourself in, into it more or something like, you know, you can just like relate to it more when you have, when you, if you know who the person is that's posting, it's like, oh, that, I don't trust that person. Or like, yeah. oh, that's not. But it's like you almost build up this anonymous like character in your head. Yeah. I don't know. It's like the Wizard of Oz, like the man behind the yeah. curtain. Because I don't know. I think like one of the smartest things Dumois ever did was like not really reveal her identity. I think it kind of goes back to this like gossip girl kind of thing. Um But then it's also, I'm always interested in the debate around Dumas of like, I know now she doesn't really reveal celebrities' locations in real time, but kind of this like voice on the internet talking about celebrities, but then she's anonymous or they're anonymous. I think she, you can hear her voice now. So I believe she's- She's she's uh, been, her identity was revealed too, like online. Brian Feldman. Oh, really? Was it confirmed? Okay. Yeah. But, But it's like, I actually, it's so funny. It was the same thing that happened to Drill- do you know the anonymous Twitter account drill? No. You know? Oh my God. He's like the most famous kind of internet Twitter poster. His name oh, is Drill. Oh, okay. I'm afraid of Twitter, so I don't go on there, but. Honestly, stay away. Drill <laughs> himself. I actually interviewed Drill last fall about oh. the downfall of Twitter. He's like mm-hmm. pretty much, yeah. He's kind of the most famous, iconic, anonymous Twitter user. S- similar thing happened to him where like a journalist like revealed him or actually I think like some troll on the internet maybe tried to dox him. But actually, the people were like, we don't want to know. Like, this is bad. Like, don't tell us. And, like, they've really, like, that whole, like, his millions of followers, like, really protect his identity. And I felt like the similar thing was with Dumois. Like, when Brian published that article, I felt like people were like, we don't want to know. Like, we don't take away the, like, mystique. Like, we don't actually care either. You know, like, it's better to not know. Yeah. Um, Wow. And that leads me into my next topic, which is the one that – Um, I'm sure you saw me like talking about, which I'm so fascinated by, which is 
Lonely Girl 15. And um, I have like a couple notes here about it, but it was so fascinating. And we'll kind of like quickly brief the audience too on who she is for those listening. But that what I thought was so interesting in your book is you talk about how they were actually afraid that once people figured out who she was and her real identity, that they would get a lot of hate. But it seems like maybe it had the opposite effect and people actually kind of respected it even more. Um, So we'll get into, but um, can you just quickly describe what Lonely Girl 15 is? Yeah. Lonely Girl 15 was this really early YouTube channel. I think it was 2007 when it really popped off. And it was these, um, this group of guys that kind of came together to create this scripted fake scripted sort of reality show type of thing about this this young girls. It was like, it was basically a YouTube channel that was like a fake vlog. And they mm-hmm. hired this actress to play the vlogger. And they hired this, this guy to be like her sidekick, best friend, like love interest. What I thought was so funny too, just side note, like when they were casting the guy in that casting description, they were like, we do not want anyone too good looking because they thought it would be completely unbelievable oh. that any young, like good looking young boy would spend time on YouTube because at the time Whoa. YouTube was like people in their basements, you know, like weirdos. Yeah. So they, oh. yeah. So if you, if the guy in the, the young boy in the video is like, mm-hmm. it, he is, you know, he's not, he's kind of like average. Looking, yeah. Yeah. And it's just so funny because they were like very much like, we don't want an attractive boy. No attractive boy would use YouTube. Oh my God. That is so funny. And yeah, it just shows you the culture of sort of like who is perceived to be using the internet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so it was this anonymous channel. It completely took off. Like this girl, they sort of told told this girl and this narrative and of, of her life through these fake vlogs that were, of course, scripted. And then it was revealed that it was a scripted show and it kind of like broke everyone's mind. And yeah, yeah, there was like, everyone was like, oh my God, you know, and yeah. Yeah. I and I feel like this was like slightly before my time, but I remember hearing about it and um reading the book was like oh my like it was the first time I really dove into the details and how like they if I'm remembering correctly from the book, they posted about it on Craigslist and that's how they found the actress initially, yeah. which is so wild. Um and then actually one of the lawyers who was um a part of it, Greg, who now is like the Demilio manager. manager yeah, he He's, and he plays about Greg, Greg Goodfried. There's these people, Ezra Cooperstein, Greg mm-hmm. Goodfried. They have been around since the beginning. Like it's so crazy, crazy. Just like the level, like because because um, Ezra now works with Mr. Beast. But mm-hmm. it's just it's kind of crazy how like some people, like these business people behind the scenes that most people don't really think about, like have been responsible for some of the biggest stuff on the internet. You know? Yeah, it's so so interesting. Like when. He So he commented on the video I'd made um, where I was preparing for this interview and having people like if they had questions and stuff. And then I recognized his name and I was like, I remember Greg's name from when they announced that the D'Amelios like started their own branch at UTA and he was the head of it. And I was like, what? Like, this is the guy behind Lonely Girl 15? Like, it's just so crazy. And another question that I have about... Um, and if you guys want to know how the fans like really, really crack the code, the book really goes into more detail about like, I, I mean, I think sleuths on TikTok are smart now, but like back then when there wasn't even that much like not like I feel like people were still self-taught on the internet more. And the fact that they were able to figure certain things out is 
so wild. But um, something I want to ask you is like, how has no one done a Lonely Girl 15 on TikTok? Or do you think that they have and we just don't know? I It's so funny. When I was writing this, I my editor asked me the same thing. Like, she was like, "Are the, do people do that? Like, is that, you know, there's this whole concept of like the industry plant, right? Like, yeah. the sort of like, oh, like you're not real. But I don't think anybody has. Like, I, I haven't seen it. And yeah. it's kind of interesting. And I would love to see it. I think that sort of, it's, it would mess with people's brains a little bit. It would yeah. be really interesting. To be like, the only thing I'll yeah. say is that we all have such a huge online presence now that yeah. somebody could be revealed very quickly. You just put that person into PIM eyes and, you know. Yeah. It would be odd if someone didn't have a digital footprint um, online, which I've even, like, for me, I purposely didn't put my real name out there just because I was always like, if I want to just go anonymous again and become like a dental hygienist in Ohio, like I can. Um, and I've even seen people online be like, you know, I tried figuring out like her on her different jobs. And I, I, I mean, I think people are almost more interested too when they can't always figure it out. But um, it, yeah, the idea of industry plant um, is interesting to me. I always, I, I feel like the word industry plan is, it reminds me of like when people would say Illuminati like 10 years ago, like that's how you know you've made it. Like I'm like the moment that I see people say like Kokomoko is an industry plan, I'll be like, I, I did it. Like I can retire. But, um, <laughs> and I think that like the reason too, maybe it hasn't happened on TikTok is because like I use the term industry plan because I think it was catchy when I was crowdsourcing questions for this and then um but there's the impl it's kind of not accurate because there's the implication that like there is an industry behind it I think the reason right. this worked is there was like four like a mosh podge of like odd characters like a former doctor um yeah. lawyers a screenwriter I think that made it interesting and like I'm in so many meetings with brands and I think fans or people online that throw out the word industry plant like I know they're saying it a lot with Bobby Althoff right now um, I think they give too much credit to the corporations because like I've been on the corporation side. They don't really know how TikTok works oftentimes. That's why they hire creators to make videos. I feel the exact same way. And mm -hmm. I worked in advertising for brands and it's like, I would love to meet a single brand that's capable of industry Doing planting. Like they yes. wish they could. That is their whole goal. They yeah. never can. They're so bad. If they were good at industry, if they could create an entire industry plan and make a creator successful, don't you think they would do that with their own brand first? Yeah, to they would totally build up their own brand first. And like I've been in meetings with brands or at conferences, even this last year where um, they'll be like, you know, I think Gen Z is kind of important. And I'm like, we're on Gen Alpha now. Like we know that Gen Z is important. So yeah, I, I always think it's funny when people throw out the term industry planks. I'm like, I, I think they're giving too much credit to the powers that be. But another question that I have about Lonely Girl 15 for you is in the book, you kind of mentioned that like at the time YouTube wasn't really monetized. They ended up getting a deal at Neutrogena. But what do you think was their motive there? Like, like why do you think they did it? I think they did it as an experiment for fun. I mean, mm. I, they like, as you mentioned, like one of them was a screenwriter, but it was this like creativity and social experiment and just see what would happen. You know, I yeah. don't, I don't think it was just like a sort of like one of those things of like, Oh, let's try to do this. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure they had some business aspirations. Like Greg specifically is like yeah. very smart about sort of yeah. like business and audience development and 
performing well. And I think people sort of knew maybe money could be had in some way, but I think it was more of a thing of like, could we make this successful? Like make this stunt, maybe it gets made into a movie, you know, maybe it goes somewhere. Yeah. And then I saw some of my comments were saying too, that the actress ended up going to be a part of the show Greek, which was big and like at that time. So um, it's just so interesting. And another question I had around more so the YouTube in the chapter on YouTube was that um, if my memory serves me correct, YouTube started as a dating app. Was that yeah. correct? Like, what? Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah. YouTube, I mean, the original idea was YouTube is like you upload a video of yourself and it was going to be this like dating thing where like you could see videos of other people and like that's how you would date. And wow. obviously no one used it that way. They started uploading like home videos and like not <laughs> using it to date at all. And then that they very quickly they pivoted. Actually, if you're interested in early YouTube too, I have to recommend another book, which is mm-hmm. Mark Bergen's like comment subscribe, which is all about, it's, a, it's an entire book on the history okay. of YouTube. And wow. it gets so into like how they pivoted and how they handled all of that in the early days. Cause it's like, I mean, I talk about this in the book a lot, but like these tech founders very rarely know how their products will end up being used. And it's sort of like yeah. riding away. You know, like they could have been like, this is so annoying. Why aren't users using it the way we want to? Mm-hmm. Like we're going to force them to like, we're going to delete all these. And instead they like leaned into it. And I think yeah. that's what was ended up, you know, leading to everything. That is so wild. I feel like, um, yeah. And, or, or even kind of a testament to like when, I think what happens now versus maybe back then, which, and you mentioned Silicon Valley and kind of these tech startups and investors in the book too at one point, but like how also when I think at least from the little bit that I know, I don't specialize in Silicon Valley and tech startups, but they're always so obsessed with getting so many investors and showing how many angel investors they have and how much money they've made before maybe even the product is like recognized or anything. And like with YouTube, them not really having those expectations and maybe being in the early days was like, it gave them that flexibility versus if they had to go to meetings every day with investors who were like, how many people are dating on the app? Like, but it kind of gave them that flexibility. So I just think it's, it's cool to like, even as a creator to think of it that way, like you don't always know what a project's going to end up being and being flexible to your audience also and seeing kind of how they're using it. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I want to do on the kind of a few more notes on YouTube. It was just the the section that really stood out to me. And then we'll get into like, also, I wanted to talk about the TikTok section. But um, another thing you talk about in the book is VidCon, founded by uh, Hank and John Green. They're interesting as well. Maybe they're like the Gregs of the world, too, where I feel like they always have their hand in social media in some way. And like they do it really well. Like it's never like they're explore they don't ever really feel like they're doing it in an exploitative way uh, but they seem to just like really add value to multiple generations as they've been on the internet yeah it's crazy there's like a handful of creators that have really stuck around and really Mm -hmm. made it and yeah hank and john are just like iconic i mean they they saw the industry before anyone else they leaned into it yeah there's both incredibly smart about the business side, but also the creative work. Mm -hmm. And I think that they've been able to, yeah, have staying power for all that reason. I was actually at the hotel that the original VidCon was at because the streaming awards were held there this year. So I was there on Sunday. They've totally redone it since the original VidCon. But 
it was wow. they had it in that basement of that hotel. Yeah. That's so funny. I always say like one day when I'm retired and have a bunch of money, I want to open up like an internet pop culture museum. And there's like certain artifacts that I think would be so cool. Like a some sort I know they kind of ran out of badges, but like if someone ever had like a badge from the original VidCon or that's why I messaged you too when that Cardi B mic was trending on eBay because I'm so fascinated yeah. that stuff like artifacts and memorabilia. And I'm like, how is anyone confirming like it's the real mic? But um and then uh they you mentioned in the VidCon section that um they were shocked at how young the audience was, but the yeah. creators were in their twenties and thirties. Why do you think the audience even today still on YouTube and like now Twitch and stuff. But why do you think the audience is always skew so young? Well, I think it's just a shift in consumption patterns and how mm-hmm. you, how people consume media. If you're younger, you're more likely to consume media on your phone digitally. I mean, this has been the trend for the mm-hmm. past 20 years. And so even back then you saw teenagers. I mean, so many people think that Gen Z is like the first like generation internet. to grow up, you know, yeah. like on the internet or YouTube or something. And it's like, no, I think they grew up during like the peak of it. They grew up when, when all like in, in sort of further in that, but this is like millennial. It's very much like millennial, yeah. honestly, Gen X or culture even like yeah. a lot of those early YouTubers, Rhett and Link, Hank and John, like they're Gen X, yeah. Trisha, even Ethan Klein, like these are all Gen Xers, Keemstar. Yeah. Like, it's kind of crazy that like Gen Xers were the original YouTubers. And I think millennials, like, certain groups of millennials really like that really resonated with them, but it was not cool. It was very not, it was like kids that resonated. And I know because I was one of them, it was like, (laughs) it was like young people that were like a little bit alternative or a lot of LGBTQ people, Mm. a lot of people that were like, maybe not like mainstream, but like a little bit more alternative. They really gravitated towards these forms of entertainment. Yeah. And I think it speaks to also with like, um, groups that feel like that, not feel, but are marginalized in a lot of ways, they often tend to be early adopters of technology as a means of survival to like find communities in a way that they've been ostracized um, in traditional means. So that like makes a lot of sense there too. And um, with the Gen Xers as well, I, I made a video once talking about the Gen Z camera shake and like my theory on it. And um, I didn't mention Gen X. I'd mentioned millennials, boomers, and uh, Gen Alpha in a follow-up video. And I didn't mention Gen X, but I, I felt bad. I made a, a then a follow-up video about Gen X. But um, a lot of the comments were saying, like, we really are this, this silent generation or the forgotten generation, which I guess they're called. But um, you're so right that, like, they a lot of the main personalities – even I think on TikTok too, I I always, uh, me and my friend Nikki always joke that like you want to get famous after your frontal lobes have fully formed because then you're like not making crazy mistakes. Um, and I know Trisha Paytas has talked about this um, before in a podcast I was listening to like years ago where she was talking about um, like the Joe Rogans versus the David Dobricks and how um, – like if you're like a Joe Rogan and if you get an audience after they're like around the age of 25 or older, they'll actually stay in your audience for longer because their personality isn't changing. Whereas like if you get someone when they're younger, like a 12-year-old fan base, yeah, they're super loyal. They're super loud. They're the stan culture sometimes. 
Um, but like 12 year olds and teenagers are changing their identity constantly as they grow up. And so they might not be fans as long. And like, that's why someone like Joe Rogan has had such a long stay is because he's getting fans like after they've already been like fully grown adults with their identities formed. So I don't know. I think that was like an interesting comparison, but with the Gen X crowd, I didn't mean to rant. I know I'm interviewing you, so I'm so sorry. No, I totally agree. I Mm -hmm. totally agree. Yeah. I mean, everything is true. Yeah. Um, Now, another thing I want to talk about, because it's kind of mentioned in the book when you talk about like the winners and like the, the, there was Vine and then the people who were able to adapt when Vine closed. Um, and you mentioned the Paul brothers and I'm just like so fascinated at them because they are so adaptable and I don't mean this in a mean way, but sometimes like when I'll be advising creators or whoever, and people are like, you have to have a really, really great personality to be successful. And I'm like, not really. Like you kind of just have to be consistent and you have to be the one like that keeps showing up whether people want you there or not. Those are the people that end up succeeding. And I kind of point to the Paul brothers is like, they just like, they are so able to adapt. Like what do you, what do you think that is? The Paul brothers are so interesting because they're another ones that have like been around Mm -hmm. for so long. Like they really started in like 2013, 20, I guess 2014. Yeah. Um, But I, I mean, part of it is, is I, I will say Logan seems to be like the brains of that operation. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that Logan is fundamentally very smart about content and um, they branding they branding and audience growth. And, um, you know, he's smart. He's really smart. I, mm-hmm. you know, and um, the boxing pivot is so interesting. They were really yeah. ahead of their time on that, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of crazy. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think like consistency, keeping up with it and keeping the audience interested, like you do have to kind of reinvent yourself frequently yeah. too, and like keep moving forward because people get tired mm-hmm. of personalities. It's like, you can't be doing the same thing you were doing two years ago. Yeah. And, and they're able to adapt to like their formats as well. Like I think where a lot of people struggle in the creator realm is, even like something like Vine seems impossible to me because being able to like communicate a message so quickly in seven seconds is way harder than making an hour long movie to me. Like I'm like, that is so hard to tell a story in seven seconds. And I think it's why so much of the content hasn't aged well because they had to rely on extreme, often like racist caricatures. And it's just like looking back, it's just like so much of it hasn't aged well. But the I, I think with Logan Paul, like one of the smartest things he did too outside of boxing was launching his podcast because him and Jake Paul at that time were really being written off as just like like the, you know, the YouTube rejects to a certain point, especially you have a, a part in your book about like daily vlogging, which to me seems torturous. Like I don't know how people daily vlogged. And I know you even mentioned they had to rely on kind of like gimmicks like pranking to be able to be consistent. And I remember, do you remember when Jake Paul like set a mattress on fire and almost killed his neighbor? Allegedly. Of course. That of was course. so crazy. I'm like, yeah, there, yes. That, I menaces. Mean, there were so, anyway. so many, they, Jake, Jake during peak team 10. And yeah. I talk about this in the book too, just like that prank culture and views culture and like what it rewarded 
was so negative for society yeah. and like that and it was reckless. And also you have to remember that like that house, I mean, Jake's content house, Jake was the adult in that house. He was, I think, 18 or 19. Yeah. And he had a house full of children. I yeah. Mean, I had one boy that moved there from the Midwest when he was 13 um, to live in that house. And so of course, when you have an 18 year old living with a 13, you know, managing it, that was, it was like chaos. Yeah. Um, and that kind of takes me off track, but I, I, I don't know if you've ever like talked to them or done like more deep dive stories on this. Um, but it really, I think came to a head with, and I sometimes avoid talking about it cause I think it's too, too dark in some ways, but like for example, the Colleen Ballinger situation where I went back and was watching some of her videos and I was like, like I couldn't finish the videos and I felt bad even watching them. The Just the content. I, I don't even like I when I was talking about it in one video, I didn't even say the title because I don't think people should see it. But do you think that like YouTube holds some responsibility for promoting these people? Because at least for me working on the back end of, you know, I'm always on like the media side, but we have conversations with TikTok and we had conversations with YouTube. There are people who are like handpicking videos that would be on the trending page. And I'm like, especially back then, especially back then when it was like hand curated, like there was no algorithm in the beginning. It was all like hand selected. They had curators. They had a whole curation team that would curate the videos. Um, I I will say Colleen generated a big audience on her own. Mm -hmm. I think, I also like it's so bizarre. I've I've always had issues with her content because of the way it mocks disabled people. To be yeah. honest, like that she's supposed to be this disabled girl. It's mm-hmm. like it's bad on so many levels. Even before all this, like yeah. you know the way she treated children. But um, you know we have to also remember that this was the culture. This was so normalized that people like yeah YouTube lays has blame but we need to think of as a society it's like it's so easy to look back it's like watching movies from the 2000s right from mm-hmm. the aughts and like watch all these like rom-coms where like rape is rape is like very common joke in and yeah. sexual assault yeah. in these movies and now of course it's horrifying to watch we would a movie would never get made like that I think largely because of the internet mm-hmm. but we need to like move the culture forward and like we need to think also like what are things today that we that that shouldn't be acceptable you know that are happening now yeah because people out i remember you know i was on tumblr obviously i'm a tumblr person me too tumblr i know for better for worse i I love it but um you know people were people were saying stuff about colleen people were calling this out and they were viciously attacked by Mm -hmm. her fans you know there was no room for debate and so i think it's like we just have to remember that it was like a collective issue. A collective, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good point. I I think that like when I when I was looking back on some of the videos and the discussions, everyone was like obviously harping on Colleen, and I agree. I'm like she was the one making the videos, and I'm like I'm just so curious. I I would have loved to be like a fly on the wall. Like I'm like, did YouTube ever have a reckoning? Like, did they have a Google Meet hangout where they're like, how did we let this slip through the cracks? But I don't know. I think it's easier too for these big companies to like kind of turn a blind eye and be like, ah, oh, like, oopsies. Like you know, it was it was the like they just like they, it's like uh, like you know they used to do re- YouTube rewind every year. Yeah. 
it's like they would just like the biggest YouTubers would be literally featured in YouTube Rewind like multiple yeah. years in a row. They get into a scandal, they just like quietly not be in the next year's yeah. Rewind. But like, it's like, wait a minute, you were literally yeah. like this person was like promoting. Totally, you were promoting them like three months ago. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's all it's all like I don't know. I'm just so fascinated the way that the platforms kind of like maneuver around these things or like why they promote certain people. But um, moving on from that, uh, my last kind of thing that I want to talk about, which surrounds uh, specifically someone who got big on YouTube, and I think her story is so fascinating, which is um, Emma Chamberlain, and. Something that I think is really interesting about her is she blew up on TikTok, and you mentioned it in the book, she blew up on YouTube, sorry, almost overnight in some ways, but like way after what was considered the golden age of YouTube. And I even remember I was in college in like 2015 and I used to post these like dorm tours. I like privated the channel. I got embarrassed, but I used to post these dorm tours when I was San Diego State. And sometimes I'll get comments where people are like, I remember dorm tours. But I remember watching a video in, it was 2015 because I remember it was my sophomore year. And it was like, is it too late to start YouTube? And I watched it and I got so discouraged because this guy was like, it's too late. You're not going to blow up. Like the golden age is over. But little did anyone know that two years later, potentially, besides maybe Mr. Beast, I would argue one of the biggest like celebrities to go mainstream that came out of YouTube in some ways launched her channel in 2017. So can you kind of dive into like, like I know you talk about it in the book, but why do you think she blew up? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I get into this a lot in the book mm-hmm. and I think that she blew up at this time that was right before TikTok. So there were a few things that kind of went for her. One, she had a very unique editing style. She kind of bucked the trends. Mm -hmm. She really leaned into, she kind of was like the antithesis of like right when we were, I think you can always do well when you sort of recognize a peak of one type of content and then you do the opposite, right? Because you're sort of feeding this like latent desire from people that they don't necessarily know, but it's like, we are so saturated by this stuff. Like give me something, you know, give me the opposite. like an itch for something else. Mm -hmm. So she did that. She did that very funny. I mean, she's very funny. She's mm-hmm. very young. She's very pretty. Um, but then also she she kind of was like, she 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 tapped into that thing that would eventually make TikTok very popular, which mm-hmm. is a craving for authenticity, humor, kind of relatable content. Like not, um, I say relatable just in the sense of like, that's what it was called is like relatable YouTube. Right. And you talk about in the book why it's not necessarily relatable relatable to everyone, but like, that's like what it was called. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just like, she hit at the right time and she, she, that, that style, she had a very unique and different editing style. And I think that also kind of like, it just, it was something different. Yeah. And she leaned into it and then she capitalized on it very well. Like, yeah. I, I think it makes sense why her and Tana Mojo blew up around the same time because they really were these antithesis. Also, I'm giggling because I'm thinking about this one sentence in your book where it was about like the Sway House and Hype House drama that happened one like crisp night in 2020. And then there's just one sentence that's like Tana Mojo, internet personality, like found a way to insert herself. And then that was just like the end of the sentence. I died. But, um, but no, I think Tana Mo, I literally highlighted that sentence because it was so funny. Well, I but, had um, a whole thing. I don't mm, think it's there anymore. Mm. The thing is, I wrote 158,000 words and I had to cut the book basically in half. I can't remember if I ended up having TanaCon in there or not, but I originally had a lot about TanaCon and, and Tana. Uh, I don't and think so. 
Oh, I, but, I need to like, I need to go through because I keep in my mind, I can't remember the versions of the, but I should release the TanaCon. Like, oh I think TanaCon was also this like moment that of change for VidCon and the internet. Yeah. You know, it was like 2018, there was a flip. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it it was like up until then people were like the internet's the wild west but then after that there was like oh there's repercussions for like being so reckless in some ways um especially when planning live events um which we're even seeing now with, like an- oh sorry we're gonna yeah, say also like tanacon happened on the heels of the adpocalypse of the yes. craziness of the like Rejection. there was just so much like going on yeah. in that time of like the bubble bursting. And I also think it was, I mean, what I thought was so notable about TanaCon too, which I wrote about originally is like, I can't remember if this is in there or not, but like, it was this like, this recognition that like YouTube can no longer determine who's a star. Like YouTube used oh, to pick stars yes. very much. And like they had this really heavy hand and mm-hmm. they would choose the features cre- featured creators, which was her whole beef, right? Like she wasn't a featured creator. And like, mm-hmm. I think, I think it was this thing of like, okay, the internet is scaled to the point actually that like you don't have a say over who's popular. Yeah, and she kind of was like anti gatekeeper, and in her own ways, I think obviously very problematic even to this day with like doxing like a wine. I don't know. I'm sure you saw that story. Oh God, anyway. I, she's always. I know she. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Um, that could be a whole other podcast. I find her really like interesting for better or for worse. But her and Emma blew up at the same time because. They were so opposite of what was um, big on YouTube at the time, which I always think of it as like the sat like oversaturated DIY. And I don't mean oversaturated; like there was a lot of them, but like you could tell in their thumbnails and videos, they quite literally like pulled the saturation up on like iMovie. Like it was like very colorful, um, and like they all used the same like music that was like from one of those like copyright free channels. Um, And it was just like this, I think Emma was so a breath of fresh air and you're so right. Like she really, her style, even her style of editing and the quick pace of it or the zoom ins, I think in some ways, um, parallels what you see scrolling on the for you page. And it's so interesting that like Emma publicly rejected TikTok. Like she deleted her account and is so against it, which I think in, I think sometimes when celebrities or creators are trying to go A-list, they'll like distance themselves from a platform and be like, I'm not a creator anymore. And I think that's what she did. Um, but um, I want to ask you, because I know we're getting like closer on time, so I'll kind of like be more efficient. But um, how do you think that Emma Chamberlain, in my opinion, I think she maintains this image of it being an underdog, even though... Mm-hmm on paper, she's not an underdog anymore. Um, How do you think she does it? I feel like she always looks like the underdog and people love to root for an underdog. Yeah. You have to, well, you have to, like, I think that's a key to success too. It's like positioning yourself that way. No one, people really don't like to see you win. Like they, they want, they want to see you win, but they want to feel like they did that. Right. Like they want to feel like that you're, you're not real, really recognized, right? But they really yeah. recognize you. Um, I think she's just a, she's incredibly adept at relating to her audience, and I think even the way she she structures her content, it's it's sort of meant to be accessible in a way, but not. I mean, her lifestyle is totally not accessible, mm-hmm. um, and she's not accessible. She's super famous now, like you said. Like it's I don't even know how to reach her other than through her PR person. But yeah, um, but there's something that that's like maintained. It's like a humor kind of that's yeah. like in a, a self-awareness that I think has kind mm. of made her also she's I don't know like 
she's just kind of like played her career very interestingly. Like she's leaned into fashion. She doesn't court controversy at all, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of people do when they start to feel like they're, oh, I'm not relevant enough. Like, gotta stir up the drama, right? But yeah. like, she hasn't really done that. Yeah, I think one of the smartest things she did is she was really closely aligned to like James Charles and the Dolan twins and very publicly distanced herself from almost all of her YouTube friendships. I think she was like during 2020 pictured at one of those like scandalous like COVID parties at like the hype house and stuff. And then she never showed her face at any of those ever again because there was a lot of just backlash. But um. Yeah. And and so now I want it. That leads me into kind of the last section of this that I want to talk about, which is hype house and content houses. And you already kind of talked to me about like two when you were able to break that story. Something that I find interesting is I have my own theories as to why, but like um, very like shortly after your story even broke, um, Addison Rae and the D'Amelio's, I think, pretty aggressively distanced themselves from being a part of the hype house. Do you think it was that, really? Yeah. Oh, what are your thoughts? No, I was going to say, like, what are your thoughts on that? So it wasn't. It was a couple months later. It mm-hmm. was right around when COVID hit. Okay. And at that point, because at, they were very excited, they were very into the original. Like, I think they used it perfectly, but also mm-hmm. recognized. So by March, Daisy Keach, I think it was March or April, even maybe, mm-hmm. maybe COVID had hit by then. That spring, basically, remember Daisy Keach left to yeah, found Club dra- Clubhouse. There yeah. started to be this drama, and I think Addison and Charlie were always the breakout stars. And I think yeah. they very quickly got management mm-hmm. and agents. Yeah. And I mean, Joe and Justin at WME, like what they did for Addison, like mm-hmm. they they do it for us all. Like they, you know, they managed her career, and I think very quickly were like, okay don't affiliate with all these smaller people necessarily. Like let's build you as a brand and you need to differentiate yourself because otherwise you're going to get lost. Every, every group, whether it's a music group or whatever, like there are going to be the breakout stars. Yeah. It was very clear that that was, you know, who it was. And I think that they didn't want to be affiliated Mm -hmm. in that way. Right. They, they wanted to not anything against them, but they just outgrew it very quickly. Yeah. Um, Which is smart. I think it's hard to like use it, but don't, no, yeah. Live and die. Yeah, I feel like usually the breakout star of anything is usually the one who leaves first because they do have opportunity. And I think that I remember around that time, and I don't know if it was Thomas Petro, the founder, who kind of was pushing the narrative, or if it was just like the general speculation online. But I remember people saying, like, you know, the hype house made Addison and the Demilios famous, and I'm like they made Hype House famous. Like it's yeah. the other way around. They were going, I remember, I mean, at the time when I was working at Famous Birthdays, they were coming in for interviews. And um, I was actually the first person to ever reach out to Charlie D'Amelio and we were the first interview with her. And I just knew like she was going to be big. Like there was just something that there. Thing, I was doing a fellowship actually at Harvard oh, um, that fall of 2019. And so I couldn't write about her, but she was from my, she's from Connecticut. And I Googled her and the only, the only story about her was some random girl had blogged about her in Colorado. I don't know if you saw that. And I couldn't write about it because I was doing a fellowship and I sent it to Joe Longo. And I think Joe at Mel did the first official piece on her, which was, this was like mid to early October, maybe November. Yeah. Um, But she was, at that point she had been ascendant. She was already a meme on the app. And Addison 
I just have to say, Addison, when we did that photo shoot, me and the photo assistant were like, she's the famous one. She hustler. Like she got everyone's information. She followed up a million times. She wanted to know when the article was running. She wanted to know who was like a level of like, just grit and kind of hustle. Mm -hmm. And like, it's like, you're like, oh, that person has it, you know, like they're a worker. Addison is a worker. Yeah. Um, And it makes sense because, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? Which I just think is very interesting because it's like, especially as women, it's like, you're usually chastised. Like you can't, you can't work too hard if you're seen putting too much effort and hustling, right? Like people don't like that, especially from women. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Addison is, is, is been able to play it really well. And she's also very funny and self-aware herself. And I think that's really helped her. Like she'll do these kind of like unexpected things. Yeah. I think she, she seems kind of like cheeky, but also like, I mean, even the way that her music is, people are so excited about it. And, um, and yeah, I think, uh, I remember when I was at Famous Birthdays too, and a lot of, there was a lot of these TikTokers and stuff who'd come in, um, And like, we would always talk about sometimes the ones who you knew were going to be A-list or very successful were the ones who like, not always, but were the ones who showed up on time, were kind to everyone, were excited to be there, which very much felt like that with Addison, with the D'Amelios, very like, and part of it too is like, people want to keep working with them because they're genuinely, and like, it's always the ones who are kind of like unsure of their position who were like mean to the parking attendants, like 30 minutes Mm -hmm. late, like came with an entourage of 20 people. I'm like, God forbid, I hope you're not paying all these people because you don't need 20 people for like a 10 minute interview. Um, And yeah, I think that was like, maybe that also kind of speaks to that grit you were talking about too. Um, And I remember with the Charlie D'Amelio interview on famous birthdays, maybe it was like the first video interview with her. um, Cause I remember whenever like people were, searching her name and she was doing dance videos. So no one really heard her talk. And I remember Evan at famous birthdays thought that there was something wrong with YouTube. Cause he was like, there's no way it's getting this many views. Like it's, they're like inflating our numbers. But I think it was cause when people were Googling her, no one really know what she sounded like. And we got a lot of comments where people were like, Oh my God, I didn't know this was like her voice was so soft spoken. And it was just this really, and I think like your interview with them in all their white t-shirts. It was like an old Navy, like it felt like a, like an old Navy, like 4th of yeah. July. Like, like it was just very like American, like It was like very Backstreet Boys, American, yes. yeah. Like, um, it's so funny though. And I talk about actually famous birthdays is, I just want to like talk about it for a second. Cause I, oh I it's an anomaly. Evan is such an interesting person. And like mm-hmm. that website, and I talked about it, I wrote it when I wrote that story about it too. And like, it's, I've talked about it in my book, but like, that website is so good at determining talent. They are always mm-hmm. the first to know. One hundred. Like they know ahead of time, and they like get people in for video interviews or whatever. But like, they're just so ahead of it. Yeah, there's like a. I mean, it's because it's like a search platform. So yeah. there were people on the back end, which like I like. I mean, it's a cert. Like it's not like a secret that people were searching names. Um, and there yeah. is a way on the back end to see, like, oh, this random person's name spiked. And it was always like an odd TikTok username. And that was where they were able to also just like numbers wise be able to kind of predict these things that were happening. Cause like there would be spikes in certain searches. And I remember Evan, when I worked there too, he, when he launched the site, he thought it was going to be people searching like Beyonce and like, yes, this is what I wrote about. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's interesting. Like, 
it's another example of leaning into what users want. Yeah. Evan could have totally pivoted. Like he thought it would be like people looking for famous people when he realized, hey, there's this entire class of this new type of famous people that actually people really want information about. Mm-hmm. He leaned into that and that has led yeah. to the site's success to this day. Yeah. I rem- Yeah. Like how it was. And at the time, I think because I got there around the time like TikTok had rebranded, but the site had been running for a couple years prior and it was all those like odd musically names and like they thought it was typos they're like who like who's looking these people up but yeah um sorry and I know we're coming up on the uh I know we're coming up on that it's so fun to chat with you I'm like oh my god forever (laughs) I know I'm like I could like branch off into like three other hour-long podcasts with you from this convo but um yeah, like thank you so much for coming on. And is there anything else that I missed in the book that you feel like you just want to get out there because it'll make people like really excited about it, or or is there well, like I just like oh sorry that no, they're actually like I mean one thing that I think a lot of people is like they think of the creator industry history as YouTube history, mm-hmm. and so much of it is of course. But I talk a lot in the book about the rise of blogging and Tumblr and these early sort of social functionalities, and especially like. Um, the other sort of like adjacent apps like Snapchat, sort of like how that like class of stars emerged on Snapchat and how Snapchat kind of fumbled it and how they kind of actually now recently have like really helped, you know, like been successful at getting creators to use it. So it's like, I just think it's interesting, like from a platform standpoint, like you see these platforms kind of rise and fall and the live streaming boom of of the mid 2010s with like you now, you know, which led to musically launching lively. There's Mm -hmm. just like... I mean, there's so many moments. And then I talk about things like the, like, I mean, speaking of that, li- that live streaming boom and like the, you know, the watermelon, the, the water, the rubber band watermelon. I don't yes. know if you remember that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And then it explodes. Like, yeah. That was such a breakthrough moment for like Facebook live and how Facebook also tried to like collect, you know, initially before all those viners went to YouTube, they went to Facebook, mm-hmm. which is so crazy to remember. Cause there was a six month period where like everyone truly thought like Facebook is the next big video thing. And I think they, could have been, yeah. um, but they didn't allow creators to monetize fast enough and they all went to YouTube. So mm-hmm. I just think, I don't know. I really, I think, I think people find this interesting because it's all really recent history. I'm a millennial, but <laughs> I think a lot of like my audience, I don't know about your own, it's like a little bit younger and mm-hmm. it's like all these things we lived through that we never really contextualized yeah. or thought about, or like we heard about once or twice, but like, you don't know the full story behind, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what makes it so great is like seeing the kind of like the seeing the inner workings of the machine that is the internet. And like, I think the reason I love your stories or even like this book is uh, when I kind of blew up on TikTok, people gave me the name of trend for like trend forecaster. And um, yeah, but like so much of it too is like, I'm like, I really just as like history just repeats. So like, if you just know what's happened on other apps, you can sometimes kind of predict like what's coming and what's going to happen next in some ways, just it might be branded differently or in use a little bit differently. But yeah, I think this book was so interesting to me because it's like, as things change, they stay the same and like humans just are quite predictable in some ways. So um, being able to see it in the bigger picture connects those dots. Um, so it was such a great book. And you, does it come out October 3rd? Was that on the? On pre-order now. Okay. So pre-order I'll leave it. that link. Okay. Yeah. The way that book sales works is like only pre-orders count 
for oh, like wow. the success when they judge the success of the book it's only off pre-orders so like once a book launches it basically like doesn't matter anymore wow. so like if you think you might want to read this book pre-order please pre-order it okay and it'll be on your doorstep in four weeks when it officially launches yeah um and that way but, if you, yeah. yeah if you guys pre-order that way then we can get like a part two and dive even more into like TanaCon and all that stuff and yeah. like I'm I, yeah maybe it was mentioned in the book and I just missed it but like yeah there's just so much like the internet's always changing so like definitely support so we can get more and more and more from you so um yeah thank you so much